Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. For centuries, one of the great fears from racists was the specter of interracial relationships. Racists in the post-Civil War era worked strenuously to enshrine anti-miscegenation laws. The 1921 Constitution and Laws of the KKK, for example, called for adherence to, quote, avowed the distinction between the races. The infamously racist birth of a nation was based on the fear of rape of white women by black men. Modern-era KKK flyers complain about the ultimate abomination, miscegenation, which decrees the death of a race. Race mixing is against God's law. This sort of disgusting propaganda has, thank God, fallen out of common fashion. Except on the left. Today, over at Jezebel, this headline actually ran. This is a direct quote. Quote, I'm tired of watching brown men fall in love with white women on screen. This is pretty incredible stuff. Why in the world would it be so terrible for a person with one skin color to fall in love with a person of a different skin color? In fact, the left has been generating trumped-up headlines about supposed conservative objections to Cheerios commercials and Old Navy commercials and State Farm commercials involving interracial relationships. The left can't come up with any legit sources who actually object to these commercials, so instead they find random Twitter followers and then build a story out of them. But Jezebel is a relatively mainstream left outlet. There, Aditi Natasha Kini writes, quote, the Big Sick, which is a new show, has been roundly lauded in the press lately, including here at Jezebel, and not without good reason. It's a funny, heartwarming love story based on the true life experiences of co-writers married couple Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. But as much as I liked it, and I did, I also found myself exhausted yet again by the on-screen depiction of a brown man wanting to date a white woman while brown women are portrayed alternatively as caricatures, stereotypes, inconsequential, and or the butts of a joke. So the story is actually based on a true real-life relationship, but it's still annoying to this lady. That's because even using a white woman as a romantic lead means, quote, in the complex hierarchy of power and race in America, paying, quote, lip service to the one notion that has shaped the history of South Asian and American culture alike, whiteness as the ultimate desire, the highest goal in defining oneself as an American. So racism against white women who have sex with brown men is fine, but racism against brown men who have sex with white women is terrible. As Keeney says, quote, representation like this furthers white supremacy and does not engage with critiques of white allyship. The only disagreement between Keeney and the KKK isn't on the appropriateness of interracial relationships, but on whether such relationships advance or inhibit white supremacy. This seems weird, but intersectionality is basically the flip side of white supremacy. Interracial sex is a no-no because it might imply that separateness for non-white races is taboo. The only strange element here is that many people on the left fail to see their own hypocrisy when they don't stand up to racism emanating from their own side of the aisle. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Oh, right. So Trump was in Europe. Linda Sarsour makes an idiot of herself and says some pretty awful things. We'll get to all of that in just a second. Plus, I will explain why I am wearing this magnificent hat. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Birch Gold. So if you are concerned that perhaps the stock market is inflated, if you are worried that the real estate market might be inflated, if you're worried that the economy is overheated, or if you're just worried about the possibility of a natural disaster knocking the stock market off its moorings, or, a, or an international incident, which seems to the possibility of which seems to be growing, you need to at least put some of your assets in gold. Birch Gold helps you do that. Birch Gold Group. So go to birchgold.com slash Ben. When you go there, 
you can get a free comprehensive 16-page kit showing how gold and silver can protect your savings and how you can legally move your IRA or 401k out of stocks and bonds and into a precious metals IRA. I own precious metals. You should own some precious metals. Everybody should have a piece of their portfolio in precious metals. It has never been worth nothing, precious metals. It would always be worth something. It's a very safe haven for assets in volatile times economically. And while the economy seems to be doing well right now, we all know, I mean, we all remember 2007, 2008, you can see how things collapse really quickly. And that's why it's important to have at least some of your bets hedged with precious metals. So go over to birchgoldgroup.com. So you go birchgold.com slash Ben. That is birchgold.com slash Ben. Make sure that you use the slash Ben. You get that free comprehensive kit and make sure you ask all your questions let them know that we sent you with that slash ben birch gold they have an a plus rating from the better business bureau five star ratings from countless clients a really terrific company uh, again everybody should have a piece in uh, in the precious metals market and birch gold helps that happen birchgold.com slash ben okay so the last 48 hours have been very very rough for the left the entire week has been very rough for the left actually president trump was in poland uh, and, uh, you know, I, first I should probably, before I jump right into the news, I should explain why I'm wearing this hat. So yesterday I was in Texas. The last couple of days I was in Texas. Texas is just a wonderful state. It's a wonderful state. I mean, we went to uh, a little town in the middle of nowhere and we were talking with some of the people there and they were talking about how they were basically just able to build their houses without any state permitting, without any local permitting. They just go out and build a house. Like, that's America, man. I mean, that's awesome. In California, you have to get a permit to retile your bathroom. I mean, legitimately, you have to get a permit to retile your bathroom in my house. Uh, it's, it is an amazing state. Uh, it's why everything looks brand shiny new over in the state of Texas. And so in honor of the great state of Texas, I am wearing this hat. Uh, it does look like, we took a picture yesterday of me standing next to a truck wearing this hat. It does look like I'm about to release a really bad country album. Uh, and I do understand, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I do understand uh, that me in a cowboy hat is a little bit incongruous, but um, I have a piece of music that I will play that I think will, will help fix all of that. Okay, so Back to the news. So President Trump is over in Poland and he gives what is a very, very good speech. His speech in Poland is, I think, the best speech of his presidency. I think it was much better, actually, than his speech in Saudi Arabia. I was not a big fan of his speech in Saudi Arabia. I thought it was weak tea. I thought it didn't really focus in on the issues that needed to be talked about. But his speech in Poland, I thought, was really quite good. I thought the Trump speech in Poland really called out the clash of civilizations that is happening. He is not shying away from the fact that Western civilization is in a Samuel Huntington-style battle with other civilizations that are attempting to rise and take its place. So Trump had this to say. He said that we are going to have to ask whether the West has the will to survive. The defense of the West ultimately rests not only on means, but also on the will of its people to prevail and be successful and get what you have to have. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? We can have the largest economies and the most lethal weapons anywhere on Earth. But if we do not have strong families and strong values, then we will be weak and we will not survive. And everything that he says there is 100% true. You know, I think that the values that he talks about preserving, I would like to see him talk about a little bit more. Explicate. What are those values that are worth preserving? And it's not just the value of being able to do whatever you want. It's Judeo-Christian moral systems that 
suggest not only that you have rights, but that you have responsibilities. And I'd like to hear Trump talk a little bit more about what personal behavior looks like in that context, what political behavior looks like in that context, why it is that government was instituted in the first place. Like foundational principles need to be retaught. Trump obviously can get eyeballs whenever he wants. And I think that that's a, a wonderful quality in a president. I would like to see him use it for good. I think he did that in Poland. And so I thought that that was a, a really first rate speech. Naturally, the, the left hated it. Trump also went hard at Russia in the speech. He actually talked about Russia invading Ukraine. He said that it was that he, he opposes Russian action in Syria. He's talked about instituting missile defense in Poland, which is something that that Obama withdrew from. And uh, and, you know, all of that the media ignored because that cuts against their narrative, which is that Trump is in Putin's pocket. Here he is speaking very proudly to the Poles about the fact that they need missile defense, about the fact that Vladimir Putin on their borders is not a good thing. And he is uh, and he's being excoriated by the media nonetheless. So here is Trump talking about Russia a little bit during that speech yesterday. We urge Russia to cease its destabilizing activities in Ukraine and elsewhere and its support for hostile regimes, including Syria and Iran, and to instead join the community of responsible nations in our fight against common enemies and in defense of civilization itself. Okay, so there is, he's, he's trying to draw a, a useful line here, and I think that it is useful. So it's funny, when it comes to Russia, a lot of people on the left have a very different story than when it comes to Saudi Arabia, for example. So they'll say about Saudi Arabia and members of the Islamic world, we need them as allies in the war on terror, so you have to make overtures to them. When it comes to Russia, they'll say you can never make an overture to Russia, because if you do, you're just emboldening them. These positions are somewhat inconsistent. I think what Trump is doing here is he's saying to Russia, listen, you go any further and we're going to stop you, but why don't you join us? Now, do I think that's delusional? Do I think Russia is actually going to join us in our battle on behalf of Western civilization? No. Unlike a lot of the people at sort of the, the alt-right, I don't think that Russia is part of the common cause for Western civilization, nor have they really ever been. I mean, Russia has always had its own interests at heart. It, trying to convert them into modern-day Germany or modern-day France or modern-day Britain is, is just silly. It's not happening. But what, what Trump says there is, is just fine. There's really not a huge problem with it, and it's not any different than anything that Bush said or anything that Obama said. The media went nuts on all of this. So, as always, the media decided that this was racist and sexist and Nazi. Okay, so Vox has a piece today called Trump's Speech in Poland Sounds Like an Alt-Right Manifesto. And here's what it says. This morning in Warsaw, Poland, President Donald Trump issued a battle cry for family, for freedom, for country, and for God in a speech that often resorted to rhetorical conceits typically used by the European and American alt-right. Wait, what? So um, family is something I talk about a lot. Freedom is something I talk about a lot. Country is something I talk about a lot. And God is something I talk about a lot. I think the alt-right are a bunch of crap bags. Okay, so I was unaware that the language of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and, and every great American thinker of the past two centuries, all of which focused on family and freedom and country and God, I'm not sure what is, that's not blood and soil. Like the alt-right focuses on blood and soil. In fact, the alt-right basically says that freedom is not even something that is necessary, that, that freedom can be quashed by a powerful central government on behalf of the quote-unquote civilization, right? The alt-right is not a small government group. And the alt-right, uh, large segments of the alt-right are not pro-God. I mean, they, they, a lot of the alt-right thinkers actually think that God, Judeo-Christian values are weakening. They're, they're sort of Nietzschean thinkers in, in many ways. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very weird critique from the left. It, they're, they're trying to fit an ideological square peg into the round hole of the, of the alt-right. 
says, drafted by Steve Miller, the architect of the travel ban, Trump's speech used the type of dire last chance warning often utilized by the far right on both sides of the Atlantic. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. JFK said very similar type stuff in, in the 1960s. And when Trump says, do we have confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Can we protect our borders? Will we preserve our civilization? Why is that a far right thing? This is not a far right thing. Okay, this has been typical American rhetoric, again, for two centuries. And it is the central question for any country is whether you have values you are willing to preserve and will you preserve those by internal action in order to preserve freedom or and will you preserve those by outward facing action but the left is so concerned with labeling Trump a Nazi that they are willing to take language that is eminently non-Nazi and then try and pretend that it's Nazi so Peter Beinart who is just an intellectual sinkhole uh, Peter Beinart is a Hamas apologist uh, he's respected on the left because he's anti-Israel and he's Jewish he has a he has a piece in the Atlantic in which he says the racial and religious paranoia of Trump's Warsaw speech. He says, in his speech in Poland on Thursday, Donald Trump referred 10 times to the West and five times to our civilization. His white nationalist supporters will understand exactly what he means. Um, well, why is that white nationalism? Like, our civil I I'm Jewish. I'm part of our civilization. The West is a Judeo-Christian one. A Judeo-Christian one. The West is not just a location, as Beinart notes, but it is an ideology, and it's an ideology based on Judeo-Christian values that undergird a system of constitutional freedoms. That's what the West was, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. But Beinart redefines the West and redefines our civilization to make them racist, sexist. I mean, honestly, if you can't use the word our civilization, the phrase our civilization, or the West, then I don't know what you're talking about. Like, is Aragorn a racist in Lord of the Rings when he says men of the West? When it, it was was Churchill, when he talked about the West, the defense of the West, was he was he a racist, sexist? I mean, what 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 is this nonsense? You know, Beinart says the West is not a geographic term. Poland is further east than Morocco. France is further east than Haiti. Well, I, so so what? It's a culture. I think everyone acknowledges that. No one says it's West on a map. The West is not an ideological or economic term either. The India is the world's largest democracy. Japan is among its most economically advanced nations. No one considers them part of the West. Well, that's actually not super true actually now i mean the like the japan is is largely considered if not technically a part of the west then then an outgrowth of the west i mean japan is in the far east but their government is much closer to the west than it is to what we would typically term you know the quote unquote east it, what, this is the thing when we talk about the west the polar opposite of the west in geography is the east but the polar opposite of the west in political terms is not the west it's islamic civilization islamist civilization right that's what we're talking about the west is a series of values he says, the West is, but Beinart says, the West is a racial and religious term. To be considered Western, a country must be largely Christian, preferably Protestant or Catholic, and largely white. Where there is ambiguity about a country's Westernness, it's because there is ambiguity about or tension between these two characteristics. That's, that's nonsense. Israel is a Western country. Right? Israel is pretty far East and entirely Jewish. It's all Jewish and Arab. Right? I mean, what, what in the, what? But again, the left is so extreme now. They've really boxed themselves in because they are so extreme that they have to, they, and, they, and they are so interested in getting Trump that they actually have to promote radical, insane rhetoric in order to in, in, in order to get where they want to go. They're defending such an untenable position that they feel the necessity to pretend that mainstream rhetoric is now alt-right rhetoric on the part of Trump. Now, what's weird about this is that there's plenty of stuff that Trump has done that you can label alt-right friendly. I mean, during the primaries, he was routinely retweeting and associating with members of the alt-right. I mean, his White House chief strategist said that Breitbart was an outlet for the alt-right. Like, you don't have to stretch to get here. But 
the left is so out, they're so insane now. They've lost their minds so much. They've lost their moorings that any reference to the West is considered fascist or alt-right. Goodness gracious. I mean, Winston Churchill spent his life opposing fascism and communism, and he talked about the West incessantly. Um, and I guess that would make him, according to Peter Beinart, Peter Beinart a racist and a, and a bigot. The, the left is so far left now that they are embracing, I mean, the, the left was unmasked over the last 48 hours. Between their attacks on Trump for using the terms of the West and our civilization, and them going after Mark Penn. Mark Penn is a consultant, a uh, Democratic consultant, who, who wrote a column saying that the Democrats should move back to the center if they wish to win elections again, which makes a lot of sense. If you want to win all of the states that Trump just took from you, then you're going to have to abandon the intersectionality garbage that you've been pushing for the last several years. And Mark Penn is getting just excoriated by the entire Democratic Party. Here's Mark Penn on Fox News getting destroyed by another member of the left. Look at what happened in the last two years of the Obama administration and what happened in, in that primary. I think the, the Sanders uh, campaign and its strength also, I think, pushed Hillary Clinton to the left. The, the Democratic Party got fundamentally repositioned much farther to the left and out of touch with working class voters. Working class voters really want to see the values of hard work, family, religion as a strong part of a party that they could support for economic progress. And I, and I think they got left behind in the shift that occurred at that time. Well, you know, I have breaking news for Mark. It's not the 1990s. You know, uh, the administration that he served in locked up more black uh, African-American men than those enslaved in 1850. So everyone doesn't have fond memories of the fallout of the 90s administration. Right now, it's not about uh, the Democrats losing their identity, the party. It's about the identity of the messenger, not the message. I'm not talking about going back to the past. Mm -hmm. I'm really saying it's time for us to, to look at new issues hey, let's look at the concentration of, of wealth and power in the tech industry. Is that working out for working people? Let's look at gig economy jobs. Do they have the kind of... The kind so, I mean, of you can see he's saying reasonable things about the Bill Clinton era. The Bill Clinton era was the most successful era for Democrats of the last 20 years, more successful than Obama. Obama got a lot of things done in his first two years, and then he destroyed the entire Democratic Party wholesale across the country. Bill Clinton actually got a bunch of things done that ended up paving the way for a more successful country because he was willing to move to the center. I mean, for all of Bill Clinton's myriad flaws as a human being and as a, and as a political thinker, he was at least willing to move to the middle in order to, in order to get some good stuff done, like welfare reform. I mean, he actually, after, after his massive tax increases, he actually lowered the capital gains tax. But the Democrats are so crazy, they're so far to the left, they're so ensconced with intersectionality and Bernie Sanders socialism that they are destroying their own party. And I'm going to get to Linda Sarsour in just a second, because Linda Sarsour's speech that came out yesterday is perfect proof of this. But before I do that, I first want to say thank you to our sponsors over at the USCCA. So you're at home, you got, you're sitting around, and you hear the front door being pushed open. You run to your safe, you grab your gun, and the intruder comes in and you shoot him. What happens next? Well... You usually think, number one, in order to get to that point, you have to have good gun training. You have to know how to use your gun. You have to know when to use your gun. USCCA, the U.S. Concealed Carry Association, helps you learn all of that. But after you pull the trigger, you're going to spend years in the court system. It doesn't matter if you hit the guy, if you miss the guy. You're going to spend years in the court system because the court system is not built for self-defense. The USCCA makes sure that you are covered for all of that. They educate you. They train you. They make sure that you are legally and financially protected for after you pull the trigger. And also... And they want to make sure that you get more guns into the hands of responsible Americans. So even though it is after July 4th, I think this, this deal is going to last a little while longer. In honor of 4th of July, they are doing the Great American Giveaway. They want my listeners to be able to have five chances to win $1,776 for the guns and ammo 
of their choice. So that deal is still on. Go over to Great American Giveaway, right? It's defendmyfamilynow.com. Defendmyfamilynow.com for your free shot at $1,776 worth of guns and ammo. Defendmyfamilynow.com. Again, you should register with them in any case. Even if you don't win the money for the guns and the ammo, you should be able to know, I mean, they have, they have classes in how to in how to carry, they have classes in, in how to, in, in, they, they give you all sorts of education materials, and then they also cover you for, in, in God forbid the situation, you actually have to defend yourself with a gun. They cover you for after that. That's what USCCA is for. Every gun owner should be a member. If you are a gun owner, you should be a member. I am a member of USCCA. You should go over and you should check it out. Go over to USCCA, defendmyfamilynow.com, defendmyfamilynow.com. Check it out, and uh, I believe that you can still uh, register to win that $1,776 for the guns and ammo of your choice at defendmyfamilynow.com. Okay, so the greatest proof that the left has completely lost its moorings and is just pandering to the most radical constituency on every side came out yesterday. So yesterday, Linda Sarsour, who is just an egregiously awful human being. Linda Sarsour is the Women's March organizer, uh, and the left loves her. Bernie Sanders tweeted out that he loved her and he wanted her support. President Obama gave her an Agents of Change Award at the White House. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background about Linda Sarsour before we play the clip that's got everybody buzzing, right? So she actually said on Sunday, she called for a jihad against Trump, right? She, she used that word. And we'll talk about whether she meant that peacefully or non-peacefully. But first, I think we need to set the stage for who Linda Sarsour is because the left keeps saying, well, don't take that quote out of context. Okay, well, I don't want to take the quote out of context, so I'll play it in context and explain it. But... I also don't want to take Linda Sarsour out of context, okay? She's not just some rando who used the word jihad to mean a moderate Muslim struggle within themselves for greater spirituality, okay? She's not, uh, she's not Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, um, Dr. Zudi Jasser. I mean, she, she's, not, she's not any of these people. She is a very, very extreme person. For example, here's what she tweeted about Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan Hirsi Ali is a victim of female genital mutilation at the hands of Muslims. Uh, she is now an atheist and she speaks out against radical Islamism. Uh, and Linda Sarsour tweeted out about her and Brigitte Ga Gabriel, another another ex-Muslim. Brigitte Gabriel equals Ayan Hirsi Ali. She's asking for an ass whipping. I wish I could take their vaginas away. They don't deserve to be women. This is Linda Sarsour, the leader of the Women's March, right? So she is she's a feminist icon. Okay, this is what she tweeted about the Honor Diaries, which was a which was a, uh, a movie about honor killings and how they are now endemic in parts of the Muslim world. She didn't like that, so she tweeted, Honor Diaries is hashtag dishonor diaries because it's disingenuous when it's funded by representatives and organizations labeled hate groups. So she can't argue with any of the content. She's just going to label anybody who funds a movie about honor killings a hate group. Okay, here's a tweet about Sharia law. Linda Sarsour is a big fan of Sharia law. Here's what she had to say about Sharia law. And I'm not talking about Sharia law like the internal governance of the Muslim community when you have a financial dispute and you and your fellow Muslims go to like an Islamic court. We have that in Judaism too. It's called Beit Din. It's not that big a deal, right? It's an ecclesiastical court. But that's not what she's talking about. She's talking about the governance of a country by Islamic law, including areas, including criminal law. She says, you'll know when you're living under Sharia law if suddenly all your loans and credit cards become interest-free. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Well, I mean, number one, it doesn't sound very nice because you can't buy anything in countries that have only interest-free loans and credit cards because who in their right mind would provide such things, right? Interest actually happens to be, I'm writing something about this now, biblical takes on interest. Interest happens to be a rather crucial part of the financial markets. But she's tweeted worse things about Sharia law. She's tweeted with regard to women's driving in Saudi Arabia, for example. She was asked about, well, if Sharia law is so great, why can't women drive in Saudi Arabia? And here's what she tweeted, right? She tweeted, she tweeted, 10 weeks of paid maternity leave in Saudi Arabia. Yes, paid. And you're worrying about women driving? Puts us to shame. I mean, just ridiculous. Just ridiculous, right? I mean, she's defending 
Saudi Arabia because they have paid maternity leave? Well, maybe that's because women in Saudi Arabia aren't working very often, okay? And not allowing them to drive is still a rather large problem, okay? Saudi Arabia is not famous for its women's rights. She also happens to be a close associate of, of many groups that are associated with terrorism. Now, the speech that she actually gave was she gave at the Islamic Society of North America, which has been linked to terror funding groups for years and years and years and years. Uh, and uh, when it comes to terror incidents, she has a, a long and unpleasant history of saying ridiculous things about terror incidents. So, for example, here's what she said about the underwear bomber. You remember uh, the, the guy who tried to put a bomb in his underwear and then bomb a plane coming into Detroit on Christmas Day uh, during the Bush administration, she said, underwear bomber uh, was CIA all along. Why did I already know that? Shame on us, scaring the American people. Okay, the underwear bomber was not CIA gang. He was a radical Muslim who was attempting to bomb an American plane. So this is who Linda Sarsour is. She's also posed next to people who are convicted of crimes in association with Hamas in photographs. Uh, she has bragged about having relatives in jail in Israel. Uh, she has tweeted out, uh, I believe, photos of of people getting ready to stone Israeli soldiers. She's a really egregious figure, and the left has embraced her. Now, what they embraced now, what they've done now, is they've actually embraced her talking about jihad against the Trump administration. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to put it into its complete context. But for that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. $8 a month gets you a subscription to dailywire.com. That deal, by the way, expires July 10th. So you have like three days left to, to get in under the wire there. It's already July 7th. July 10th, the rates go up. So if you want $8 a month, um, you get that subscription. You can be part of the mailbag, see the rest of the show live. We are doing live mailbag a little bit later in the show. Uh, so we'll be doing that. We do that every Friday. Uh, you also get Clavin's show live. And if, if you become an annual subscriber, then you get a free signed copy of the book I wrote with my dad, Say It So, all about baseball and parents and fathers and sons. A really fun, interesting, lovely read. It was really fun to write. I think you'll enjoy it as well. And I'll sign it for you when you get an annual subscription. You also get the entire Daily Wire website ad-free, which is super cool. Uh, but you have to go over to Daily Wire and subscribe. If you want to listen later, just go over to iTunes or SoundCloud, hit subscribe, leave us a review. Whatever numbers of stars you're going to give us, just add five, and that's your actual proper rating. Uh, and leave that over at iTunes. We always appreciate it. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so yesterday, as we say, there was a headline that came out that Linda Sarsour, this Women's March organizer championed by the left, treated as just gold-plated wonder by Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, that she said in a speech that she called for jihad against the Trump administration. Now, she did, I mean, those were her words. To pretend that jihad does not mean what jihad means is very silly. Jihad has many meanings, okay? Jihad can mean anything from an internal struggle uh, for, for spirituality to actual violent war. And so when she called for jihad against the Trump administration, she gave some context to it, and we will play the context, but I wanted to give you the context of who she is because I think there's a little bit more here than just, oh, she meant jihad, like, oh, you should just say stuff about the Trump administration. I think that's disingenuous. So in order to understand what she said, you have to listen to a lot of the speech. You have to, it's 22 minutes long. We're not going to play the whole thing. We're going to play the crucial segment. She opened by thanking a guy named Saraj Wahaj. Okay, here is her thanking a guy named Saraj Wahaj. I'll explain why that's important in just a second. In these United States of America, if you sit back idly in the face of injustice, if you maintain the current status quo that not only oppresses Muslims, but oppresses black people inside our community and outside our community, undocumented people, other minority groups and oppressed groups, you, my dear sisters and brothers, are then aligned with the oppressor. 
if you as a Muslim are standing on the sidelines, if you are neutral in the face of oppression in this country, you are not a patriot. You are aiding and abetting the oppressors in these United States of America. Okay, so it's not in that clip, but she did open by thanking this guy, Siraj Wahaj. Uh, in the, the, this, this person, Siraj Wahaj, uh, is an actual uh, terror supporter. I mean, he, he was listed as a possible unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. He testified on behalf of the blind sheikh. He has a long history of speaking about jihad in the traditional way. Right, there's a direct quote from him. I think this is from 1992. Quote, I will never, ever tell people, don't be violent. That is not the Islamic way. The violence has to be selected. Okay, so when people hide behind the, well, she, you know, jihad can be meant in a number of different ways. That's right. It can be meant in a number of different ways. And to pretend that it can't be meant in a number of different ways or that when you use the word jihad, it doesn't have certain connotations is just ridiculous. So in that clip, you hear her talking what is basically typical leftism and putting it in the in the context of jihadism, right? Or in the context of uh, nonviolent jihadism, but but rather uh, Islamic resistance. It's kind of leftist resistance, leftist resistance in an Islamic mask, right? If you sit back idly, then you are part of the oppressor and you are not doing your duty as a Muslim. Okay, so that part is just typical lefty rhetoric. Here is the part that got all the headlines. There was a man who once asked our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he said to him, what is the best form of jihad or struggle? And our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to him, a word of truth, truth in front of a tyrant ruler or leader, that is the best form of jihad. And I hope that we, when we stand up to those who oppress our communities, that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad, that we are struggling against tyrants and rulers, not only abroad in the Middle East or in the other side of the world, but here in these United States of America where you have fascists and white supremacists and Islamophobes reigning in the White House. Okay, okay so the word of the use jihad in this, uh, the use of the word jihad in this context is disturbing. So she starts off by saying that what she means is a word of truth in front of a tyrant ruler or leader, that is the best form of jihad. But notice the language. Language is very specific here, right? She actually says, so I'm going to do a close read because the left keeps accusing people of taking this out of context. I'm giving you the entire context, okay? It's very important. She says there, I hope that when we stand up to those who oppress our communities, Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad, that we are struggling against tyrants and rulers not only abroad in the Middle East or the other side of the world, but here in these United States of America where you have fascists and white supremacists and Islamophobes reigning in the White House. So she is, number one, equating the Trump administration to, quote-unquote, tyrants and rulers abroad. I assume that this means Bashar Assad, right? I assume that this means, um, from her perspective, the Israelis. Uh, I assume that this means the Saudi government, or I guess she likes the Saudi government, so maybe the Iranian government. I don't know where she stands on, on these various Islamic supremacist countries. But the, the phrase that stuck out to me here is that she says, I hope that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad, a form of jihad. She's explicitly acknowledging in that phrase that there are many forms of jihad and she is not disavowing all of the other forms of jihad. She's not saying the only form of decent jihad is speaking out against bad people. That's fine, right? No one cares about that. She's saying there are many forms of jihad and I hope that Allah will accept this as one form of jihad. Okay, there's an implicit statement there that there are other forms of jihad that are legitimate. There is, okay? There's no other way to read that intellectually, honestly. Now, she's not Yasser Arafat because she's not actively engaged in terrorism. But Yasser Arafat did the exact same thing in 1992. During the Oslo Accords, he went out, he talked to crowds about jihad, the Israeli government protested, and he said, no, 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 I don't mean jihad, jihad. I mean, you know, like an internal struggle, like speaking words of truth. 
So I'm not saying that Sarsour is actively supporting terrorism, but I am saying she is using verbiage that is specifically designed to be vague. Okay, she is using the word jihad advisedly here. And the left has no leg to stand on when they pretend that she is, is totally non-associated with terror support. Again, she started this speech by thanking a guy who has significant terror ties. The Islamic Society of North America has significant ties to funding of terrorist organizations um, and has for 20-odd years. Okay, the, the, to, to, she, 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 in the speech, she recommends CARE, which was another unindicted co-conspirator in the Holy Land Foundation trial funding terrorism. The, you know, all of, these, all of these organizations have serious questions to be asked about them, and she is a fundraiser for all of them, and she speaks out openly about Sharia law, and she pretends that terrorists are CIA plants, and the left defends her. And when the left, the left, the same left, that was very upset in 2001, I don't know if you recall all the way back, all the way back to 2001, in 2001, President Bush gave a speech in which he called for a crusade against Islamic terrorism, and the entire left went insane. How dare President Bush say this? How could President Bush do something so horrible as to mention the word crusade? Because it's just like the crusades when we fought against Islamic invaders, when the Western countries fought against the Christian countries, fought against Islamic invaders, and pushed them back out of Jerusalem, and they were brutal and horrible. How could he use the language of religious war? Okay, they said that in 2001. The word crusade had been stripped of its religious meaning, essentially, for several hundred years by that point. Like when most people said crusade, they didn't mean religious conquest. Right? Crusade was a lot less vague a word than, than jihad. Right? Crusade was pretty secularly used. But people objected anyway. They said this was the language of religious war. Linda Sarsour gets up there and she uses the word jihad in a time when our legitimate enemies who are murdering Americans and Westerners around the world use the word jihad to justify their behavior. And she says that she hopes that her speaking against Trump is a form of jihad, is taken as a form of jihad, and we're supposed to pretend that this doesn't do anything, that this is perfectly legitimate, that she is a total advocate of nonviolence. Okay, she may not be advocating violence against the American government. She, not be, she may not be advocating for you know, actual violent jihad against the American government, but she certainly isn't telling everybody around the world, hey guys, back off the violence. And she's certainly not quashing talk about how the American system of government is less tyrannical, than, is, is just as tyrannical, rather, as, as all these other dictatorships and, and evil regimes that oppress, according to Linda Sarsour. So naturally, the left comes out to her defense, and they pretend that all of this is totally fine, and how, how could we be so upset about this? Why do we care if she uses the word jihad? Jihad just means struggle. Listen, Sarsour is not a dummy, okay? If she wanted to use the word struggle, she could use the word struggle. If she wanted to use the word resistance, which the entire left has used, she could use the word resistance. But to use jihad, which literally means holy war, in discussion about Trump is really troubling, and it should be troubling. If the left wants to make its program, if the left wants to make its program for 2018, we are going to run on the program of we are angry at the use of the West in our civilization, but we are totally cool with somebody saying jihad against the Trump administration Go for it, gang. I mean, if this is what Democrats want to do, enjoy. And I hope that you enjoy the flaming defeat that you experienced in 2018. It really is not good for the country. Um, you know, I'm glad that Democrats are exposing who they are every day, uh, that the left exposes what it is every day. Um, it, it is amazing. When we covered this and we said that she called for jihad against the Trump administration, the left immediately said, oh, that's inaccurate. It's not inaccurate. She did, okay? We didn't say that jihad meant that she was calling for terrorism against the Trump administration. She used the word we didn't. Okay, but the left, but the left then declared that everything she said was totally normal and non-objectionable, and that's just silly. Okay, so before I get to some stuff I like and some stuff I hate in the mailbag, first I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Kanai. So Kanai Pro Gear, it's C-A-N-N-A-E, like the battle. 
Pro Gear, C-A-N-N-A-E Pro Gear, and they deliver these phenomenal, reliable, incredibly built, functional backpacks and bags and ammo bags and go bags. Just fantastic. I have the Legion Elite Day Pack with helmet carry, and uh, aside from looking really cool and being extraordinarily durable, you know, I'm not somebody who goes shooting a ton in LA, um, but I do carry around diapers a lot, so this, this bag has become a fantastic, fantastic diaper bag for me. If you're looking for the perfect pack that can be used for anything, can do it all, then I recommend the Legion Elite Day Pack with helmet carry from Kanai Pro Gear. It's C-A-N-N-A-E progear.com c-a-n-n-a-e progear.com if you use the promo code ben you'll get 15 percent off your entire order get bags for yourself get bags for your family uh, they have they have rifle bags they have they have uh, all the things that you're going to need all the gear and you can follow them on facebook and instagram at can i pro gear uh, again it's can i pro gear.com c-a-n-n-a-e pro gear.com and use that promo code ben to get 15 percent off any order that you make go ahead and check it out right now the guys who run it are just, they're, they're really nice guys, and they, they also are really creative. Uh, so go check out what they do. Very, very cool stuff. Okay, time for some things I like, some things I hate in the mailbag. So, things I like. Um, since I uh, bought this cowboy hat yesterday, um, and uh, because it's odd that I, Ben Shapiro, uh, am wearing a cowboy hat, I thought that I'd pay, I, I was looking for songs with Jewish cowboys, and I could really only think of, of one. Uh, and so we'll play it here in the things I like. Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys which was the name of his band. Uh, he, uh, he has a song called They Ain't Making Jews Like Jesus Anymore. So here we go. Well, a redneck nerd in a bowling shirt was a guzzling Lone Star beer. Talking religion and a politics for all the world to hear. They ought to send you back to Russia, boy, or New York City, one. You just want to doodle a Christian girl and you kill God's only son. I said, has it occurred to you, you nerd, that that's not very nice? We Jews believe it was Santa Claus that killed Jesus Christ. You know, you don't look Jewish, you said, near as I could figure. I had you lamp for a slightly anemic, well-dressed country. Oh, they ain't making Jews like Jesus anymore. They don't turn the other cheek the way they've done before. He started in to shout and spitting on the floor. Lord, they ain't making Jews like Jesus anymore. Okay, and uh, the the moral of the song is that this this jerk in the bar who's using all sorts of racial slurs ends up being knocked on his ass by by the Jew who's not like Jesus anymore because he punches. So. <laughs> <laughs> Kinky Friedman would end up running for governor and the independent ticket uh, in Texas. He did not win, but uh, I think that he should run again. Since Trump is president, Kinky Friedman can probably uh, do well, I think, in, in a Republican primary. Uh, so there it is, another, another Texas Jew boy. So, okay, other things that I like. Uh, good for Savannah Guthrie. So I'm going to point out that the media have been just awful about President Trump, obviously, and about uh, all of the... All of the trying to track down people who have created gifts and all this routine. Savannah Guthrie uh, from, um, I think she's on, M on uh, MSNBC, she said that the media, the media needs to take her advice. She said, stop treating every single molehill like a mountain here. Media writ large, I mean, you can't even talk about the media anymore. It's not monolithic. But I do think that we need to play the long game. 
We don't need to play small ball. I've seen a lot of reporters who have snarky Twitter feeds. I don't think that helps. I don't think when we're trying to say, hey, we are fair, we are neutral arbiters, we do care about the truth, we do care about facts. I don't want to give people who disagree with that any ammunition whatsoever. So I think for all of us, I mean, my view is like, let's just be the best possible reporters we can be for those of us who aren't writing for the editorial pages. And, you know, every mountain, every, excuse me, every molehill is not a mountain. I mean, I saw reporters breathlessly talking about the disorganization of the White House Easter egg roll. Well, that's not the same as giving away intelligence secrets to the Russians in the Oval Office. And I think the media needs to take a breath and know the difference and have proportionality in terms of its coverage. Okay, and this is exactly right, and uh, and if the media doesn't take this advice, they're going to continue to blow themselves up. Another thing I like is that CNN's ratings are now below Nick at Night. I mean, they are just destroying themselves. As I said last week, it's not that Trump is so much destroying the media, is that he is the tempter who's tempting them on. He's the siren calling them into, into murky, murky depths, and they will be drowned by their own accord. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So... So CNN uh, is is it's ridiculous. There is a there's a handshake between Trump and the first lady of Poland, and it's pretty clear that what happened is that the first lady of Poland didn't even see him. She walked by by him, shook Melania's hand because that's typical. You first the first lady's shake and then you change partners, right? Uh, and um, so Trump apparently didn't know this, and so he went out for the handshake. She walks right by him, shakes Melania's hand, then turns and shakes his hand. No big deal. The entire media goes insane. The entire media. Oh, look at that. Trump got stiff for a handshake. Chris Chalise over at CNN, he tweets, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, all capital letters. Ooh, ooh, ooh she is so woke. Except that's not happened. Here's the actual video of the handshake. Actually is a good bit of news, and I would say positive news for our European allies that were packed in the final 10 minutes of this speech. You see that, right? So Trump got the handshake, she got the handshake, but it didn't matter. Everybody treated it from the media as though this was the end of the world. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, end of the world. So it's, you wonder why CNN is blowing itself up. It's they're blowing themselves up because again, everything is treated as a full-scale disaster. Every single thing is treated as an insane full-scale disaster. So just, just crazy towns from CNN. No wonder their ratings are so egregiously bad at this point. I mean, they truly, truly suck. So, which is, which is exactly what they deserve. Okay, time for some mailbag. So here we go. Um, Zach writes, what is the minimum government intervention that is necessary to run a successful capitalistic republic? Can a society be successful by pure capitalism alone, or does a society require a hybrid of socialism and capitalism? The age-old question. So I don't believe that society requires a hybrid of socialism and capitalism in the sense that I don't think that the government has a job in redistributing wealth, which is really what socialism is about. The government is there to provide protection for property rights. It's there to protect life, liberty, and property. Which means that if you're doing something that doesn't affect somebody else's life, liberty, or property, then the government has no right to intervene to affect you. So in consensual market transactions, the government does not have a right to step in and stop those. So, you know, I'm very libertarian on this stuff. I think that even the FDA uh, is, is unnecessary. I think that we could have private organizations that are paid by that, that are paid to evaluate sources. I mean, we have Zagats to rate restaurants. I don't think you need a government agency to rate A, B, and C. Zagats is perfectly good at it. I don't see why you couldn't have the same thing with a scientific organization that actually looks at the studies and doesn't hold up drugs for 15 years the way the FDA does. Um, the, the most government market intervention is really, really negative. Uh, I, I say the minimum of government is, uh, is the best possible. Again, government is really only necessary where you have a problem of the commons. So you have 
a common resource like the oceans or like a national forest where everybody's sort of taking what they want. And there you have a problem because you can't have everybody taking what they want from, a, from the common pile. But because you might be, and again, that goes back to you might be invading somebody else's property rights. Uh, you might be invading the collective's property rights. Like if, if a city is built and then there's a collective park, a guy can't go sleep on the bench there and just declare it his home because, again, we all pay taxes for that area if we have decided as a community that we want to do that. Okay, Anthony says, speaking from an anxious heart, I see in my generation a very dangerous drought of original thought and rational reasoning. Where do you think this leads? If to a worse society, how quickly and how can we stop it? Uh, well, Anthony, obviously, you know, it's, you say it overwhelms you. It, it, it's, it, it is overwhelming. I mean, we now live in a society that values victimhood and treats emotion as currency. So emotion is the only thing that matters. If you are sad, that gives you legitimacy. If you are angry, that gives you legitimacy. Uh, the, it, it's going to lead to a society where you are encouraged to act out on your worst inclinations because that actually gives you more legitimacy. The worse you act, the more aggrieved you must be. And the more aggrieved you must be, you must be aggrieved by the system, so we must change the system. That's sort of the left logic when it comes to emotion and politics. Really, really dangerous stuff. And that's why it is imperative to say to people that your emotions do not make you good. Okay, this is why, as a Jew, I'm a big fan of acts-based religion, okay? And I'm a big fan of acts-based politics as well. I don't care what's in your head. I don't care what emotions you feel. If you do the right thing, I care a lot more about that. So, for example, Barack Obama did a lot of the wrong things, but he said many things about Jews that were nice. Okay, Richard Nixon said privately many things about Jews that were really, really nasty, but in the 1973 war, he was the one shipping weapons to Israel. I care more about his actions than his thoughts. Okay, the same thing is true of Harry Truman. I use that as just one example, but there are, there are plenty of examples where the act is good and thought is bad. We seem to be a society where we don't care if the act is good so long as the thought is bad. We, we would prefer to have a bad act and a good thought than a bad thought and a good act, which I think is insane. Jackson says, hey Ben, I recently got a job at JCPenney and in the break room there was a sign that read June is LGBT Pride Month. I feel that I am viewed by the public as sharing the company's view of the LGBT community since I work for a company that supports them. As a religious person, I'm highly uncomfortable with that. I've thought about for a while where I should draw the line at for when a company is so out of touch with my own values that it would be justifiable for me to quit. As a religious person, where should that line be drawn and should I feel an obligation to work for companies that represent my values? Well, I think that you know, I'm lucky. I live in a, in a world where I get to say what I think every day on the job. In fact, that is my job is to say what I think, which is just wonderful. It's very difficult when you're working in a market that, that feels that it is necessary to participate in what you believe to be religiously immoral behavior. And I can't give you a guide as to when you should sacrifice your financial livelihood because I think it's a, it's a complex question. I mean, if you're talking about now your kids can't buy shoes because you're not working at a store that supports LGBT Pride Month, you know, I think that that's a problem. Again, I do think there's a distinction, by the way, between a store that says everyone is welcome to come here and shop and a store that says that we are going to foster the notion of transgenderism and we're going to foster the notion we're, we're going to fund gay rights groups that, that are attempting to threaten churches, for example. There are groups that, that give money to GLAAD um, yeah, or the ACLU. You know, the, it's the same question in a different guise. Would you have worked for a company in the 1960s that was discriminatory uh, against against people of different races. Um, it's easy for me to sit here in my free world where I could say what I want and say, yeah, quit if you disagree with the principles of the company. But I think that there is a little bit more complexity to it than that, including the, the higher moral question right now of how do you feed your family. Uh, but I do think that we're, we live in an economy where there are plenty of jobs available, and if you can find a company that, that better aligns to your values, I think that you should try and pursue that as fast as possible. Uh, Austin says, is a hot dog a sandwich? Um, so a hot dog is not technically a sandwich. The reason a hot dog is not technically a sandwich is because 
A sandwich, in my point of view, requires two pieces of bread. Okay, a hot dog is, a, is on a bun. Uh, the bun is not cut, right? So therefore, if you cut the back of it, then I guess it's a sandwich now. Um, but because it, is not on a, because it is not two pieces of bread, definitionally, it cannot be a sandwich. A pita is not also a sandwich. When people put pita on, under the sandwich menu, they're doing it wrong, okay? Pitas are not sandwiches, they're pitas. Okay, Mitch says, Hey, Mr. Shapiro, I've made it a goal in life to attend live performances of every Beethoven symphony. Five, seven, and nine are in the bag so far. Which one of Beethoven's symphonies would you go hear if you could pick only one? Well, if you could pick only one, you almost have to hear nine because it's such a magnificent work in Western in the Western canon. Um, but it's... And it's also dramatic because obviously you have the choral aspect to the, the final movement of Beethoven's Ninth. Everyone misses the first three movements of Beethoven's Ninth, which are, are fantastic. I mean, I love it. the first movement of Beethoven's Ninth. The opening of Beethoven's Ninth is just the most fantastically creative thing ever. It sounds like the, the orchestra is tuning, right? It, it, because they are, right? It's a bunch of open fifths. The, the orchestra is tuning, and then boom, he comes in with the theme, and it feels like... It, it, it feels like a musical version of the creation of the world, right? The world was tohu vavohu, uh, the world was chaos and, uh, and nothingness, and then, boom, God spoke and, and there was light. Uh, I, I think that, that's what the beginning of Beethoven's Ninth feels like. Um, but all the Beethoven symphonies are great. You know, th- it's really funny. A lot of people have downloaded Beethoven 1. That's because people think, okay, well, it's his first symphony, so that means that it must be really good. It's actually, you know, the first two are considered his weaker symphonies. Starting with three, the Eroica, uh, which has changed how symphonies were done. Symphonies used to be relatively short, like 20 minutes, uh, 25 minutes. The Eroica is like an hour, um, it's, and it's a fantastic piece of music. Starting with three, it just gets more and more and more creative. Eight is really underappreciated. I think six is really underappreciated, too. The ones that everybody knows, of course, are five, seven, and nine. Okay, Jeffrey says, Hey, Ben, I was wondering whether you had an input on Aristotle's quote, Man is by nature a political animal. He stated the true purpose of government is to enable its citizens to live a full and happy life. Do you think this is still relevant, or do you think that our government is too caught up in its own political gain to actually uh, actually help its citizens? Well, Aristotle also believed in a rule of the aristocracy. So he believed in a rule of the wisest, right? A, a group of people who were so wise that they could... In the, they could come up with a civilization that would that would that would foster people's growth, and in which there was an elite that got to sit around and think all day, and everybody else would get to fulfill their own aspirations by working in whatever group they wanted to work in. Um, we don't have a government that way, right? In a democracy, which is as Winston Churchill said, the the worst system except for all of the others. In a democracy. Aristotle is right that man is by nature a political animal, but that means that man is by nature an animal that wants to control other people. And that's true even of the aristocrats. It's true even of the oligarchs that Aristotle spoke of, which is why the founders broke away from such an oligarchy. And they said, okay, we would rather be, as as William F. Buckley said, list, uh, governed by the first 50 names in the Boston phone book than by the justices of the Supreme Court lawyers from Harvard. Uh, I, I think that the, the safer view of government is not that its job is to foster the creativity of a public, but it's to prevent other people from invading my rights. It's my job as a human being. I have a personal responsibility to fulfill my potential within the rights that are protected for me by government. Okay, Diana says, hey, Ben, what is your opinion on the divorce rate being nearly 50%? How can the country as a whole bring that rate down? Uh, so, Diana, uh, the divorce rate is actually not really 50%. It's, it's 50% of all marriages end in divorces, but not 50% of all people who are married divorce. There's a distinction there. The statistical distinction is if I am married three times then and you are married one time, then that means that the divorce rate is now 50%, right? Because 50% of all marriages have ended in divorce. Two of my marriages ended in divorce. But that doesn't mean that 50% of all people are divorced, right? It is, so it's, that, that's sort of a problem in the statistics. I mean, most people who get married still stay married. Uh, divorce is still way too serious a problem. I think that the way to, to fix that is by, number one, 
recognizing what it is that you expect out of marriage. People have wildly wrong expectations of marriage because they've watched too many rom-coms. They think marriage is going to be an unending series of vacations on the beach with Corona beer. Uh, and that is not what marriage is. Marriage is, it's not work. Um, it is, but it is, it is a mission to better yourself and to better your family. Uh, and it is not all about your personal happiness. Maybe this is, I think, the greatest mistake people make. Marriage is not about, well, I shouldn't say that. Marriage is not about personal joy. Because not every aspect of marriage is going to be joyous. There are rules in marriage. Rules don't make people happy. But what does make people happy in the long run, what does make people happy in the long run is fulfillment. And fulfillment can only be had when you decide to wed yourself to a person who you think is going to make you better as a human being and who's capable of being made better by you so that you complete each other, right? This is the biblical idea of marriage. And then in that completion, that completion is fulfilled with the generation of children that you then bring up in the best possible way. Marriage is the most fulfilling thing that you can ever do, but you have to go in with the expectation that you are going to change, your spouse is going to change, and that you are not going to be able to change your spouse in ways that you want to change your spouse. You have to gauge realistically, is this person who I want to marry somebody who is going to change in ways that I like, or are all the things that annoy me now going to be around in 30 years? Everybody gets wildly unrealistic about this, particularly women. They tend to think, oh, I'll marry the guy and then I'll change him. Okay, the person you marry is basically going to be the person you're married to except worse in 10 years in, in the worst ways. They'll be better in the best ways and worse in the worst ways, I think is, is fairly typical. People are not big on change, but uh, it does make you a better person to be married because you are suddenly hemmed in by being required by the, by the restrictions of marriage to actually put yourself second, to be, to be giving. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, our society is built around selfishness. A society built around selfishness is going to destroy an institution based on unselfishness. And this is true in religion. It's true in marriage. Uh, it's true all over the place. Okay, final question. Nick writes, hey, Ben, thank you for speaking the truth. Do you think it's wrong to take somebody off life support if they are financial burden? Please let the viewers know that I put the burden in quotation marks. Okay, so there it is. Um, so I think that the wishes of the person are paramount. Uh, if the person wanted to be kept on life support, then I think that it is imperative to keep them on life support. It also depends on whether the person is brain dead or not, in my opinion. If the person is brain dead uh, and on life support, the, the, by the way, this is a separate, the, the Jewish worldview is that you actually have to be very careful about people putting people on life support because once you put people on life support, then it's hard to tell when they're dead, right? Because their heart is still beating. And so you sort of have to keep them on life support until they die. So there's actual active consideration in Judaism if somebody is brain dead and they have a choice as to whether to put them on life support Support, maybe you don't. Maybe you just let them go because the life support is going to keep alive a body that no longer has a brain functioning inside of it. Um, I don't think that financial burden is really the question. I think moral is the question because once you start making health decisions based on financial burden, uh, then you can get into some pretty dicey territory because it's pretty expensive to take care of people who are sick. It's pretty expensive to take care of people who are suffering. It's pretty expensive to take care of children. Uh, so as a general principle, I don't agree with the idea that you should take people off life support uh, if they are a financial burden. But I do think that you should think about whether to put somebody on life support with their own consent uh, if they are capable of the consent. That's, that's my general perspective. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I want to think more about that because I think that one's worthy of a full essay, Nick. Good question. All right, so we'll be back here on Monday, and we should be in our brand new studio. So we have hijacked the Blazes Studios yesterday. We are now broadcasting in front of a in front of a blackboard with a picture of Jeremy Boring's dog upon it. So next time we will actually be in a real studio. I hope we won't be in the in the funeral 
parlor studio anymore. And then you can see what we have been building. It is indeed magnificent. And by the way, we have a major announcement coming up on Tuesday. Ooh, are you excited? You should be because it shall be magnificent. I'm Ben Shapiro. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.